You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. of Dr. Caligari have critics been so enthusiastic. Never before have audiences been so terrified. Never again will you experience a tale of terror to compare with the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus. Here is a strange and fascinating motion picture that the London Observer compared with the ghastly elegance that often suggests Tennessee Williams in one of his more abnormal moods. A mature horror film that the Paris critics called worthy of the great horror classics of our time. Starring Pierre Brazer as the depraved scientist who used beautiful women in the most frightening way imaginable. Alida Valley as the accomplice who procured the young girls he needed so desperately. Juliette Magnel as the innocent victim of a madman's perversity. The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Motion picture as fascinating as it is fantastic, as unusual as it is shocking, as frightening as anything you will ever see on a motion picture screen. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Hi there. Also with us this week is Ms. Alexandra West. Hi there, nice to be back. This week we are talking about the 1960 film from Georges Franju, Eyes Without a Face. In France, the film was released as, and forgive my French, Le You Sans Visage. The film was released in the U.S. in 1962 with the unlikely title The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. It's the story of Christiane Genessier, played by Edith Scobe, despite the U.S. trailer saying that she was played by Juliette Maniel, a woman who was disfigured in an auto accident by her father, a doctor played by Pierre Brasseur. Fortunately, he's developed a way of fixing faces, and he's done before for his, um, I don't know, she's his secretary or assistant, mistress. Her name is Louise, and she's played by Alida Valley. Now... If only he had a new face to give to his daughter. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers, so if you haven't seen this 56-year-old film, please stop the podcast, track down the movie, and come back. We will still be here. Alexander, when was the first time you saw Eyes Without a Face, and what did you think? I probably only saw it a couple years ago. It was always on my radar, especially with that Billy Idol song. And the visage of the face, that seemed so iconic to me. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later and what iconography in a mask can do for a film. But I already had a sense of it. So a couple years ago, when I was getting into New French Extremity after watching films like Martyrs and Inside, which I was really drawn to, I was also reading a bit more and more about 
eyes without a face. So I finally sat down and watched it. And it's truly unlike anything I have ever seen before. Uh, I watch a lot of horror movies. I watch a lot of movies. And there's nothing that I can compare this film to. And I think that's what makes it so singular. It's unnerving. It's unsettling. It's lyrical. It's beautiful. It's a lot of things. And I feel like this film is so simple in a lot of ways, but it deals with a lot of complex things really interestingly. I first saw Les Yeux Sans Visage in the 70s when I was in college. At that time, we didn't have videotape, really. We certainly didn't have DVDs. And so the way that you saw movies like this was you either saw them at revival houses, and the film hadn't played at any revival houses that I had noticed in the time that I'd become aware that it was a movie I should probably see. Or somebody got a 16-millimeter print of it, and you saw it that way. And somebody I went to college with had a 16-millimeter print that he had borrowed, and I think we should probably do air quotes around the word borrowed. I think he'd just taken it out of some school archive someplace and uh, did a screening in a room that wasn't even a screening room. He tacked a sheet up on the wall to even up the surface of the wall and projected it there. And... uh, it was absolutely breathtaking. It really was one of those movies that I was by then, I think, afraid would not live up to everything that I had read about it being a masterpiece of, of lyrical horror. Although Franju himself actually said that it wasn't a horror film, it was an anguish film, and I think that that's a very apt distinction to make. It just knocked me out, and I have seen it so many times since then, I probably couldn't count them. And yet it still maintains that visceral, horrifying beauty. I saw it when I saw it this afternoon. That same look was there that made me unable to take my eyes off it, even for a minute, despite the fact that I knew exactly what was coming every moment, pretty much, because I've introduced it at that screenings. I've seen it many times. I've included it in classes. I've taught it's a film with which I'm extremely familiar, and yet it takes my breath away still. I saw this one, I don't remember how many years ago, but it was um, Janice going around and doing kind of a revival of it, uh, probably before it got into um, maybe DVD the first time, possibly VHS, but I think it was DVD. And I saw it at the Detroit Film Theater and was just like you guys completely blown away by it. It was just so breathtaking and it is just, gorgeous. It also was kind of interesting, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about the music later on, but this movie, when that theme song starts up at the beginning, I didn't realize that I was very familiar with the theme song because uh, the band Combustible Edison had covered it on one of their first albums. So it was just, it kind of took me out of it a little bit, just as I'm sitting there watching this and hearing this music, just going, I know this song. Why do I know this song? And it was it was kind of a nice thing once I finally realized what it was and just was like, okay, this definitely has a place in pop culture in addition to the Billy Idol song that you mentioned, Alexandra. So I love the way that it plays with our expectations, especially in that opening where we see Louise driving down this old country road and she's got someone in the back of the car and someone who we can't see their face. There's just a big hat and a coat over them. And as the movie unfolds, really the first time through, I seem to think that she is a killer 
it takes a while before I realize that she wasn't necessarily the killer, that she wasn't necessarily the bad guy of the film. Although I would say she is a bad guy because she's certainly so completely loyal to Dr. Genesia that she will do absolutely anything that he asks of her. And you have the feeling, I think, after you've seen it through that part of it is because he performed surgery on her face, which was injured in some way. As Christiane says to her later, at least you had a face for him to fix. So she was not as severely disfigured as Christiane is, but he gave her back If you can use the words her beauty, because in fact, I don't find Alita Valley a hugely beautiful woman, but she's a very, very striking woman. There's something feline about her face, but not in the cute Simone Signore way. She doesn't look like a kitten. She kind of looks like a predator in a very serious way. Part of it is the elongation of her face. Part of it is her cheekbones. Part of it is that she actually does have very cat-like eyes. And she always seems to be looking at things the way cats look at things. By and large, the way cats look at things has to do with they're making the decision whether or not they're going to leap on it, and if they do, whether or not they're going to kill it, or how long it's going to take them before they do it. It's very unnerving, and I think unnerving is a word that we're probably going to keep coming back to during this conversation, because Eyes Without a Face is rarely shocking in that it shows you truly shocking things. There are a couple of places where it does. But it's not a movie that relies on shock effects as much as it relies on making you very, very uneasy throughout. Even in scenes, again, that if you've seen it before, you know nothing horrible is going to happen in. There's still a kind of anguish running underneath everything. It's it's a disturbing movie. One of the things I, I really loved about the introduction of Louise and as we get to know her throughout the film is that it seems so unlikely to have this henchman, you know, we're used to, you know, an Igor, an Igor figure, uh, this hunchback kind of doing all these evil biddings. But you have, like um, you and Maitland were saying, this generally attractive woman going out into the world and doing these things and being the doctor's arms or grabbing hands, if you will. And it just occurred to me that it's so odd to have a female in that role because as a young woman or a woman in a city or an urban setting, we look to other women to protect us. We we looked uh, to them to help uh, alleviate any tense situations. And for her to kind of act as a double agent almost is so sinister. It feels so creepy. It feels so wrong. And it's uh, such a lovely performance because it, the whole time, you know, as soon as you kind of learn the whole inner workings of this uh, plot that they have, as an audience member, you know she's on the wrong side of it. She's doing harm. She's on the side of evil. But I'm still so drawn to her as a character. There's so much warmth between her and Christiane that I want her to be nice. I want to trust her. I want her to do the right thing constantly. That's the great tension in her character, because on the one hand, she really, people have said this before me, she really is Dr. Genesier's dog. And the, and the fact that people keep talking about that great collar of pearls that this woman they've seen with some of the missing girls wears drives home that comparison to a dog. And yet, she also is truly a maternal figure to Christiane. You can see she really does love her, and she wants things to be okay for Christiane, even though she's seen things go wrong and then go wrong again and then go wrong again as her father keeps trying to fix it. 
but she remains loyal to Genesee, in part, I think, because she keeps hoping that the next time will be the time that it works, something he himself hopes as well. And that's a subtlety that I think can easily go unnoticed the first time you see the film, because primarily what you see about him is his unbelievable arrogance. You get the feeling at certain points that it's not even so much that he wants to fix his daughter's face for her. He wants to fix her face for him because it's his fault that she looks that way. He had an accident and he was driving the car. It's it's his fault that she's disfigured. But you also feel that it's partly because he has that God damn it, I'm going to fix this attitude that is extremely common in surgeons, that kind of surgical arrogance that I'm the guy who's going to go in and lay open your chest and fix your heart. The question is, do I have a God complex? I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England. And I am never, ever sick at sea. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. You can see why they have it, but it's not the most attractive quality in doctors who specialize in surgery. Yeah, he is completely cold. Even when the first time we see him and he's giving that lecture about some of the procedures that he's been working on and afterwards, I mean, he's understandably upset because the role that he's playing is of a father who has lost a daughter, actually can't find his daughter. And some of the people at the lecture come up to him and they're just like, after your splendid lecture, I feel as though I were 20 again. It was absolutely thrilling, wasn't it, Carlo? What a marvelous future you offer us. If you're thinking of your future, perhaps you should have thought of it earlier. And they say, oh, he says the strangest things after he lost his daughter. And it's like, no, he's just really kind of a prick. Well, and the place that you really see what a prick he is is when he's talking to the father of the girl whose face he's taken, Monsieur Tessot. He's saying he has no idea... He's identified Tesso's daughter's body as the body of his own daughter so that he can effectively keep up the ruse that his daughter is dead. And he has no sympathy for a man who is, is truly desperate. In fact, the last thing he says to him, which is the real knife in the wound, is, well, you know, my daughter is dead, Monsieur Tessier, but you at least still have hope. <laughs> That's evil. Yeah, that little dig, too, I don't know if it's translated the same for everybody, but where he says, how strange it is that you expect me to comfort you. Spoken like a true dick. And to that point, we still don't necessarily know that he has a daughter, that she's at home, and that she's okay, and we're carrying on with this ruse for the audience and this ruse for the audience of everyone in the film. And so, again, when we go to that funeral, and they're talking about Louise at the, the funeral and their relationship that she has to him, and I think somebody refers to her as his secretary – and we see that look on her face. It's just like, oh, yeah, she's she's the one that killed Christiane, and, and this poor doctor doesn't know. And then how quickly it turns that we realize, oh, no, this is a plot, that this girl is okay. And when it, when it comes out that he is fully immersed in this plot, it's like, all right, now you have to suddenly recontextualize everything that, that has happened it, up to this point in the first act. And that's one of the things that I really like about this film is just the way that it kind of pulls the rug out under you with a lot of these kind of little twists and turns. And just makes everything so much worse. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make anybody 
appear to be a nicer person. No, everyone is so controlled. Every moment, it feels like a really evil chess game that they're all playing with each other. And there's, you know, movements forward and then they retreat and then they come back and there are moments that look like victory, but everyone, the, they just feel so controlled and so calculated. And it's all so clinical in so many ways that any moments of tenderness also feel slightly off because you don't expect it of this film. But there are some truly genuine emotional moments in it. And actually, one of the loveliest ones is when Christiane finds her way to the chamber downstairs where Genesia keeps the dogs. And there's that moment where one of the dogs stands up so its head is poking out of the cage and she kisses the dog. And it is absolutely heartbreaking, in part because, let's face it, animals are sweet and nothing good is going to happen to those animals that are down there. But it's also that you see a moment where, even though she still has her mask on, she knows that the dog doesn't care because dogs don't care what you look like. They just care that you come and you rub their ears. It's really heartbreaking. That moment in particular has always struck me because it is the most human moment of the film, as you just pointed out, Maitland. But it, it is so odd because it's between a human and a dog, but it's two creatures, two mammals looking to connect and they understand a way to connect. And even just the idea of her kind of nuzzling her face or putting her face towards a dog, you know, it's, she can't really feel it through the mask, maybe some pressure, but there is still that beyond a physical need for an emotional need to be close to something else because one of the cruelest moments of the film for me was when her father, the doctor, tells her, you know, you you must put on your mask. Where's your mask? Please put it on. Very early on when we are introduced to Christiane. And it just, it's like she can't even have it off around the house. Obviously, she's terrified of her face, but, this, but as she says, the mask terrifies her more. And the fact that it is this controlled environment that she is in just feels deeply, deeply oppressive. I think one of the other most poignant moments in the film is the one in which she calls her fiancé, who believes she's dead at that point, as does everybody else. She's actually seen her own death certificate, which is the reason that she's prone on the fainting couch when Genesier comes to see her, because she can't believe that he's actually had her declared dead. And she just whispers his name into the phone, and then... Louise comes in and hangs the phone up and asks her what on earth she thinks she's doing. But that moment where she says his name in that very faint voice that's obviously coming through the barrier of the mask and then the barrier of the phone, again, is simply heartrending because she so desperately wants that connection. And yet, you know she knows there's no way of making any of that work. She already knows that she's dead to the world and that no matter what her father does, no matter what miracles of surgery he might be able to perform, she can't ever come back to the life she had before. And her father almost seems to say, oh, isn't this going to be fun? You get to be a whole new person. And basically, you have to give up your fiancé and all of the life that you've known beforehand. And so, yes, even if she wins, quote-unquote, by having a new face, she loses everything else. Absolutely. And the fact that he says that to her with no irony. Oh, won't it be fun? You'll get to pick a new name. You'll get to be a different person. And apparently can't even begin to conceive that she doesn't want a new name. She doesn't even really want a new face. She's not happy with how scarred she was, but she doesn't want to be not herself, which is why at one point she says to him, 
she looks into the mirror and she doesn't see herself. She sees somebody who looks like her. And that's an incredibly important distinction that she recognizes and to which he is utterly oblivious. Well, one of the things that strikes me about this film and and what feels truly horrifying, the more I think about it and the more you live with it, is the uh, importance of the face, of especially a young female face, that that is uh, a young woman, especially a, a young, attractive woman's greatest asset. If she does not have that, then that's a problem. But if she has it and she loses it, then that's an even greater problem. I mean, there's an entire beauty industry marketed to women about how to prevent aging or reverse aging. But to have something, uh, scars from a horrible accident. There was an incident up the street for me here in Toronto last week where a woman was randomly slashed in the face. And some of the first instincts you have are just like, God, like the, the scars how horrible that will be. And it is such a societal imposition on status. And I think if anything, I feel like the doctor and Louise have kind of put that onto Christiane. I don't know if she has internalized it as much as they have externalized it on her. It feels like a very deeply female film in so many ways, but like all the male characters are kind of trying to mansplain it to her. The poor thing. And God knows the last thing anybody wants to hear is mansplaining because it's always so completely, utterly bizarre and yet presented to you in ways that are so completely, utterly confident. I mean, there are times when you could doubt yourself, when when you really think, am I just so wrong? Did I really not get this? Particularly when you're young, which brings us back to the character of Christiane, who's both young and I think very sheltered. It's pretty clear that her father has controlled every aspect of her life so far, and that she hasn't had a lot of experience of the world. I mean, even the man to whom she's engaged is her father's partner. So she didn't get to go out and find him for herself. He was the guy who was there, who clearly is nice and decent, and and he's a doctor, can never complain about that. But her plight is made that much worse by the fact that she doesn't seem to see any way of living except the way her father makes her. She's not like Edna, uh, who actually does fight back when Louise comes into her room. She pretends to be sleeping and then hits her over the head and tries to escape. Doesn't work out very well for her, but she seems to have a, a spark of life in her that no doubt comes from having lived a different kind of life from the one that was imposed on Christiane. Yeah, even Christiane's revenge in the end, it's, it feels so passive. It's just an undoing of things. It's an undoing of the straps. It's an undoing of the crates. It's, uh, she's not terribly active in her own emancipation from this family. And I think that's what makes that final shot of Eyes Without a Face so incredibly sad. When you see her wander out into the dark, you know that she doesn't have a plan. She isn't going anywhere. She's just going away. Absolutely. If there could be like a dictionary picture of wandering, it would have to be that film image because it's unsteady. It's unfocused. But I'm so curious about it. I, I think it's one of the best endings I've ever seen in film. I completely agree. Well, since we're talking about the control of the father, I mean, let's talk about kind of the the patriarchal society in which this is taking place and just the kind of, I don't know, neglect or or just 
failure of the system when it comes to what's happening with these girls, what's happening with Christiane, how easily the doctor manages to hornswoggle all of these people, and how ineffective the police are. I mean, they just take everything hook, line, and sinker and basically blow the whole case. I mean, they don't end up solving this thing at all. It is the undoing that you were talking about is all Christiane at the end. It is not the police helping out in any way. Well, I think the trope of the bumbling police officer is is so common throughout so much of horror cinema or genre cinema. But for me, one of the more interesting parts of Eyes Without a Face in this aspect is that it these police officers actually don't have terrible ideas. They've got some solid ideas about how to do this. They, it's, but it's like they're about to slide into home base and then they forget what they're doing and walk off. It's so odd, but it's such an interesting thing as, as an audience member to be like, oh, these are not bad ideas, and then watch them completely fumble it in the end and uh, adding to your anxiety about the narrative of the film. And you're right. That's one of the things I like about this film. The police are not discounting the disappearances of these girls. And they do recognize that there is a type of girl who's disappearing, which makes it that much more clear to them that this isn't probably just a bunch of flighty young women who have uh, gone off for a vacation with their boyfriends and didn't tell their parents or who have gotten into some other kind of, oh, silly young girl mischief. They recognize a certain kind of girl is disappearing and that there is something to this. And as you said, they get really, really close. I mean, they do come up with a good idea in finding a girl of the same type who, whom they make to believe owes them a favor because they're not busting her for shoplifting and humiliating her parents and get her to walk into the trap, essentially. It's not a bad idea. It doesn't work so well. But it's still a reasonably solid piece of police work, and it's imaginative. So it's actually really awful when you realize that it's not working at all. Yeah, I was just reminded of, you know, like a, like a criminal minds where you always know that no matter how well they set up somebody to play a, um, a faux victim, that they're going to eventually get it hit over the head or something worse. And luckily, nothing really at the end of the day happens to her. She manages to escape with her face still intact, but no thanks to them whatsoever. In fact, it comes down to one of the other victims helping her out. And the fact is, you know she's going to wake up screaming for a good long time. And people seeing this movie might have woke up screaming as well. I mean, that I forgot how, I can't say graphic, but just how disturbing the surgery scene of Edna when her face is removed, just how startling that was. And I have to say, gosh, it is so effective. And you know what's actually really fascinating about it to me, just because yesterday for reasons that are both stupid and convoluted to explain, I wound up watching almost all of an episode of, of, I think it's called Millionaire Matchmaker. And one of the people who is looking for a match is this guy who is one of a couple of guys who style themselves the human Ken dolls and have undergone an enormous amount of plastic surgery in order to change their faces and their bodies. And there's a picture that comes up on the screen at one point of this young man before his surgeries lying down on a table with his face marked for surgery in exactly the way that you see Dr. Genessier 
mark the face before peeling it off. And it really kind of sent a chill through me in a way that it probably wouldn't have had I not been explicitly thinking about eyes without a face when I saw this r- ridiculous, stupid reality show. I thought you were going to say that you were watching Face Off, the uh, John Woo film. I'd like to take his, his face off. Maybe that's where the white birds came in. Something far, far worse. Although, yes, the white birds are definitely a, a link that connects the two. There's nothing like doves. Though, again, those doves fluttering over Christian's head are just extraordinary. What an image that brings back what Louise says about her at one point, which is that she looks angelic. And she says, well, no, not angelic, really. But that's exactly how she looks when she's wandering out into the darkness in, in that white, I guess it's a nightdress or maybe it's a, a, a robe with those doves fluttering around her head. It's incredibly beautiful and incredibly eerie and incredibly disturbing, like so much of, of the rest of this film. Well, it's kind of like an inverse of uh, a Disney princess because, you know, you've got the trope of all those little like animals helping, you know, Sleeping Beauty or Snow White get dressed in the morning. And this is like this princess who is murdered essentially to free herself from these shackles, taking these animals into the darkness and we're never to see her again. And I love the way it plays with it. But I also love how this movie convinced me to never shoplift. I was thinking about it, but I won't now. We can pair that up with Dario Argento's Tenebrae, another lesson in not shoplifting. (laughs) You know what, honey? Don't do it. It's not going to end well for you. Noted. I won't do it. I have to say it was very appropriate that uh, Pierre Beaulieu and Thomas Narsajak God, I, I'm sorry. Anyone listening who speaks French, I'm I'm deeply sorry for the way I'm slaughtering these names, but that they were the ones who had adapted this book for the silver screen just because of their work, whether it be previous or upcoming, especially because I kept thinking of things like Diabolique, which they had had written, and even, you know, well, Vertigo, especially Vertigo, really, because of the main character in that basically being dead at one point. You know, Scotty thinks that our main character is dead and she basically returns, you know, the, the name of the, uh, the book in French is from among the dead. And here she is returning from the dead and poor Christian wants to return from the dead. And but they even talk about that at, as we were talking about when she has this face for a little while and we think that she's going to be able to go out back into the world. But again, she would just not necessarily be the person that she was. She would have a slightly different face and, just not even recognize yourself when she saw the mirrors and you know the removal of the mirrors from the house is is another fantastic touch and one of the other things that i like about this whole thing is when you come down to it a lot of this is it's almost like a like an old spooky house kind of movie too there's so many great shots from inside of the house and so many times talk about building tension where we follow her through these hallways, down these elaborate staircases, and just the amount of passageways that she has to go to when she gets down into the basement, through the secret door and everything, you never know necessarily what's going to come out from behind, you know, around the corner or or, or anything like that. And so it's just like, it helps build that tension of what else could be in this house. Like, we don't see those dogs for a long time. We hear them, but we don't necessarily 
see them and we don't even necessarily know why they're there. So once we find out that they're there for surgical experiments, it makes it all the more sinister. I really love that little mini lecture in the scene in which the dog catcher is delivering a new dog to Dr. Denessier's house and, and says basically, yeah, you know, p- people all love them when they're puppies, but then when they get too big and they start eating a lot, they let them loose in the woods and see where they wind up. Yeah, the doctor is not very gentle when he takes that kind of noose and puts it around the dog's neck and marches it off basically to its doom. And he is not there just for his love of animals. Most certainly not. I also do love, however, that one shot where you see the perfect square of, I assume, a different piece of a different dog that's been grafted onto one of them. That is truly great. Without, it's not bloody. You didn't see the surgery. It doesn't look like a horrible healing wound. It's just wrong. And that just is so indicative of so much of this film, just being able to give us that feeling without the gore. You know, Because even when I was talking about the surgery scene, there's not a whole lot of gore to it. And it basically, more than anything, it's implied. But it is so well done. Well, and as many people have said, you know, what's really horrifying about that scene is not actually the first cut of the scalpel. It's the marking, because you see exactly what's going to be done. But it's just a grease pencil. I mean, it's it's chilling. And yet, you're not seeing anything that is overtly awful, except that by then, you have a very good idea what that marking is about. I'm curious, what do you guys feel is that relationship between Louise and the doctor? Because they say at one point that she is his secretary, but it seems like there's obviously a whole lot more. I don't really pick up on what their past relationship is before she had her face fixed by him. What is your interpretation of their relationship? It definitely feels uneven to me or unequal because... You know, you always kind of want to go towards a romantic relationship, but she has this reverie for him. Louise admires him. You get that because otherwise, why would she be doing quite of why would she be doing all of these things if she didn't believe in his work and what he has saved her from and everything he has provided her for and what she thinks he will be able to do for Christiane. So it it felt a bit more like a cult leader and a cult follower a little bit rather than a pure, simple cut and dry relationship. There are obviously a lot of shades of gray in this relationship, but to me, that was the only other thing I could think of that felt similar. Would you say that there were 50 shades of gray in this relationship? I would say that there are 50 shades of gray on the screen. I've always suspected that she's his mistress, but that it is not. she's not his mistress because she loves him. She's his mistress because she feels that she owes him, and not because he particularly wants her, but because he thinks, well, that's his right. I mean, hey, he fixed her face, and, you know, men have needs, so that's part of, I think, the function that I always thought that she played in his life. I always felt that it was completely about obligation and duty and entitlement, but that there was a a relationship that you could describe as them being lovers, just not in any good way. Yeah, he is so cold. Actually, he's so cold, but 
at the same time, it feels like he is just at like a low simmer the entire film. Like you never know when he's going to necessarily strike out. I think that's one of the reasons why when he grabs Edna and covers her face with the cloth and knocks her out, that is a really shocking moment for me because he just seems so controlled through so much of this film. And it even seems to shock Louise, even though she knew exactly what was going to happen. There's just a moment where you feel as if she's almost on the verge of recoiling because of the sudden violence of it, because it's a reminder of what is simmering under the surface of Dr. Genessier. And I think that all comes back to his vision of himself as a man who has mastered nature, who can make human flesh do things that other people can't. His entire sense of self, I think, is based on the idea that he is the, he, he controls everything. And it makes him furious when blind fate steps in and scars his daughter, which, which is the way he would like to think of it, even though he absolutely knows it wasn't blind fate, it was him driving too fast on a rainy road. Because he felt like he can control the car and he can control it even on this terrible road when he really, by all common sense, particularly that of a doctor who knows the kind of injuries that can be inflicted on people during automobile accidents, slow down and just not behave. Again, to come back to that word, like such a dick. And there is a reason that we use the phrase such a dick to describe certain kinds of men. I mean, it is very much about asserting uh, a kind of primal, untrammeled masculinity. Well, it makes sense then that he, and I agree with you in that moment, uh, when he, when he uses the chloroform on Edna, that it feels so out of place, but it's, she is the one character who's not within his control, that, he, that he is not fully kind of committed to him in a certain way. So it makes sense that he would have some kind of violent impulse towards her. And it, it feels so like that masculine, impotent rage that he has. And, and so yeah, he's such a dick. Yeah, that's true. When I think about it with Louise having the pearls around her neck, with Christiane having the mask kind of foisted on her, with the dogs all being in their cages, he does have complete control of everything in that house, except for that one person who he immediately has to strike out at. I think master of the house is the term that we're looking at there. All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with Kate Ince, author of the French film director's book, Georges Franjou. We'll play that right after these brief messages. Imagine a world where you can reverse the effects of age, stress, and sun. From the leading name in biotechnology comes Regenerate. Another breakthrough from the Umbrella Corporation. Regenerate's revolutionary T-cell formula actually brings dead cells back to life. Now, your youthful beauty can last forever. Always consult your doctor before starting treatment. Some side effects may occur. Hey, Projection Booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. 
Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres such as musicals, Oscar-winning films, or right now we are in the middle of Martial Arts Month. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in High Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh -uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was you. It was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. My name's Kate Ince. I'm a researcher and a tutor um, at the University of Birmingham in um, the UK. So um, I teach cinema. Formerly, that was just French cinema, but and now I teach a wider range of films from a lot of different places. I've researched a lot of different kind of topics in film and the visual arts. Um, my first book was on a, a French performance artist, um, and then I wrote a book on Georges Franju, who's the director of, of Eyes Without a Face. Subsequently, I've done more work on French cinema, and I've just finished a book on film directed by women, um, which is not all French cinema, but a lot of um, French women directors and some British women directors. I'm, I'm quite excited about that at the moment um, because, well, I, I just have um, I finished the manuscript for Christmas, so if the book isn't out yet. It will be out to, at the very end of 2016, I think, or the beginning of 2017. But I'm kind of just, you know, making some, making a few changes recommended by my editors, and then it will go into production, which is always kind of makes you look forward to to it hitting the market. Yeah. Hmm. What got you interested in the cinema? I think it was um, living in France. Well, um, yeah, I, I think it. I think it was kind of French film culture that made me want to sort of teach it 
at a, you know at university as as my main subject. I mean, I did a regular sort of academic education in in the UK, and I, I wasn't a great film fan when I was a kind of undergraduate student, but. Um, I met some film, some real film enthusiasts at the university where I did my postgraduate study, which was um, University of Sussex in the UK. Um, so I got, I definitely started going to the movies a lot more when I was 22, um, which I hadn't done before. And then after three years of postgraduate study, then I came to live in France because I needed needed a job to to get me through my graduate studies and finish up writing my PhD. And it was the easiest way to earn money was to come and teach English in France. Um, and I kind of more or less lived in the cinema when I was in France. French film culture is, is a lot healthier. In, it still is a lot healthier, you know, in France than it is in the UK. And, you know, it's that, that that's a subject in itself, really, which I don't think I could kind of sort of expertly. But but it is really great. And, and sort of French cinephilia kind of is what keeps me going. <laughs> France, you definitely plays kind of right into that. I mean, he was one of the founders of the Cinematheque, correct? Yeah, that was 1935-6, and yeah, I kind of found out all about that when I was writing the book on him, and it was more of a collective effort of a number of people, including some women who never get credited for it, but but, but he and and um, Henri Longlois, who was the, the archivist, the real archivist behind the Cinematheque, definitely kind of deserve the main credit. Yeah, it's appropriate that they're seen as, as the inventors of the, of the Cinematheque, yes. Franju, even though he is, I would consider, a very important director, he doesn't seem to have a lot of scholarly material being written about him. Why is that? I think it's probably because, if I'm honest, and I don't think he directed very many great films. I mean, he only directed eight feature films and a number of documentaries. The documentaries possibly don't get the attention they deserve. But out of the eight feature films, then, you know, I think I think Eyes Without a Face is far and away the best. A couple of the others probably deserve also more attention than they get, but some of them are not necessarily that that great. So he's got a limited amount of, of his his output that is that is really kind of repays a lot of a lot of scholarly attention. I mean obviously I wouldn't have I wouldn't have wanted to write a book on him if I didn't think that he deserved a new study in English, you know, because when I when I wrote the book on him then there was only one um, study in English. Um, I'm not sure whether anyone will ever write another one, you know, but that was uh, written by a, a fantastic critic. Um, I mean, Durniat, Raymond Durniat, was, you know, who, who died in the 2000s, I think, you know, was a, was a, a brilliant, brilliant film critic. And his, you know, I, I drew on his study of Swansea a lot um, because it had some brilliant insights in it, but it wasn't totally complete. I mean, he wrote it before Franger's career really ended in 1974. And, uh, you know, it was kind of, I suppose, critically somewhat outdated in some ways, despite having some brilliant stuff in it. So it did seem like a, a, a kind of more recent English language study was really was really necessary and, and really merited. I mean, I kind of hope that I did the job that will last a, last a generation or two, because I'm not sure whether anyone else is going to write another study of him. Why, Franju, what kind of drew you to him as a director that you wanted to write about? It was definitely I forgot it was it was uh, the film I forgot a face that got got me into him i I was writing um my first book, which was about the, the a performance artist who did her biggest and most kind of acclaimed project was uh was a project she did of uh, performing cosmetic surgery as performance art so actually um her, her name was Orlan and she did that in the early 1990s so 
So I was writing a study of her, which um, which came, then came out in 2000. And obviously, Eyes Without a Face has a surgery as part of its theme. So I became a bit obsessed with cosmetic surgery. Not that I've ever had any, <laughs> incidentally, apart from maybe to have a you know a kind of wart removed on my nose. But it, it was I don't know. There was something about the the sort of the theme of of surgery as kind of a transformation and and the whole sort of um, idea of the face and what it what it signifies in film, which I was thinking about. Um, and I happened to go and see the film at my local cinema in Birmingham. I was completely transfixed. I, did, I immediately thought, you know, that's my next book. That's what I'm going to write about. It was it was it was that film. But then I started, you know, watching some of his other stuff and I had to come to France to do that. I mean, I think I managed to and borrow a few of the other feature films because not not all of them were on video or DVD. But I made sure I watched what I could when I I was in Paris. But the documentaries were really really great. So that confirmed my my wish to 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 study him in depth. One of the things that I like about your book a lot is you kind of describe a tension that's happening, uh, having Franju as a filmmaker of the 50s versus the filmmakers of the new wave and where he doesn't necessarily fit in with that new wave movement. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? He said he wasn't, you know, um, a, friend, a particularly a friend of or didn't mix with the new wave directors that much, I guess. Although they, but yeah, they had they had an important interview with him in uh, an issue of Kaiju Cinema from around the moment of the new wave in 1961 or, or around about then. I don't remember the exact date. He was very much respected by them, but he just wasn't a part of the the school of thinking that French cinema was it was old fashioned and the which I guess was was uh, you know what made people like Godard want to want to kind of really shake it up. I mean. But, which obviously I don't disagree with. I mean, you know, the way God I shook it up, up, up was was um, pretty amazing in some ways, and 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 it and it's probably needed doing. But um, but Spanish had his own approach. I mean, his, I, I guess in cinema, then mise en scène was his biggest thing, and you know that's one of the things that is so great about Eyes Without Faith is 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 the mise en scène of the film, and you know he he sort of uh, felt that he knew what he was doing with the way he already did mise en scène, and probably didn't see any need to. To transform that, I think the, the sort of um, experimentation with cinematography that that got applied out wouldn't really just wouldn't have suited his his way of going about things. When it comes to Eyes Without a Face, it sounds like you have read the original source material, which I've been trying to find. But can you tell me a little bit more how that compares against the film? I haven't read it. If by, if by source material you mean the book of the same title, which um, as far as I've ever been able to find out and. I have tried more than once, you know, at intervals, is not now available to buy as a, as a, as a book. Uh, it was obviously, you know, um, issued in, in the late 1950s and might have been available for a long time after that, but I think now it's just simply unavailable. I mean, I might come upon it, if I'm very lucky, in a second-hand bookstore in, you know, somewhere in France at some point, um, but I think that's literally the only way that if someone has got a copy, I suppose I should do a search for it, you know. <laughs> I mean, should should I send out, you know, a poster post a, um, a kind of message to a, a network of, of sort of French film people interested in, in, in French film in France and then and then you know a, a copy would come out of somebody's cupboard I, I'm, I'm sure but I haven't actually done that and and it's definitely not available to buy anymore not issued I'm not sure that it's an essential thing to do anyway because Franju and his co-writers which which were the writer of the novel and Wallow and Nassajak um, the sort of the writers of, of Vertigo and and um, 
and the uh, Cluedo film um, Lady Abolique as well. So they're better. They've got you know some other um, pretty important films to their name as writers. They transformed the source material quite a lot. So that's the impression I got. I mean, so for instance, the the character of of the, the surgeon, the father surgeon in Eyes Without Face, really was a you know a crazy scientist, completely crazed scientist in the original book. Um, and possibly, I'm not, I couldn't say for certain, but possibly doesn't have that that sort of um, character of the the very you know the desperate father, which is which is so interesting about him in in the film. So I'm not I'm not sure that the source material is anything like as interesting as what what Franjo and his co-writers made of it. So it it it's, it would obviously be something worthwhile doing, but um, but I'm not sure how much um, you know how much light it would shed on sort of what you're trying to find out. That's one of the things that I appreciate about the film is just that kind of family relationship that's going on in there, and that it kind of separates the film for me from a lot of other things rather than having just a mad scientist kind of moving it more into that familial relationship. I think when I first saw the film, I really identified in a huge way with Christian, with the daughter figure. Perhaps I better not go into 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 uh, that uh, um, in, in too much detail. But you know, having a sort of a very dispassionate, successful, and kind of remote father figure um, made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> and um, and therefore, you know, I, I kind of really did. I certainly inserted myself into the into the sort of family structure uh, to a large extent. It was a long time, it was actually a long time before I could see how kind of desperate and uh, the father figure was and that he, you know, I couldn't even see for a long time that, that he really was do, doing what he was doing out of love for his daughter as well as being the objective and kind of rather inhuman scientist. Um, but, I mean, obviously I can see that now. <laughs> And then there's the other woman. And I've always tried to figure out what her relationship is to things. And just you know, the one that's always wearing the choker and has just that little scar under the choker. Uh, I think it was mainly doing that that, that, um, that gave me the insights into, into why she's so important. Because, you know, he picked out loads of stuff. I mean, um, about uh, Alida Valley, who played that part um, in, in his book. She was uh, an actress of Italian cinema and Italian horror, uh, amongst other other things, I mean, and probably slightly past the, her, the sort of height of her career when she played in Eyes Without a Face, because she played lots of very glamorous roles in Italian cinema. I didn't know any of that. I wouldn't have known it without without doing that. Um, but, 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 and he also has some great insights into sort of, you know, a kind of her sort of uh, role as as a as a evil stepmother, the fairy tale aspect of of her character, which I don't know whether I would have seen them without without what he wrote about her, really. So. She is great. Um, I think I think I write about Frankenstein um, about her, the, the the scar on her neck and her connections to the figure of the Bride of Frankenstein in my book, and that was my input. I mean, I kind of at the same time as I was researching Franju, then I got very into Frankenstein movies and um, and sort of you know uh, looked at all looked at all of those and just was really I mean it really is there. The, the, the sort of um, I don't know whether that was conscious on. Franju's part, or and his other co-writers, or not, that that scar in the neck kind of connects connects her, her character to to the figure of the Bride of Frankenstein. But it seemed very important to me. Well, it's interesting you're saying that uh, Franju was really known more for his documentaries. Uh, how long between when he was making his documentaries and when he kind of switched to feature films? And where does Eyes Without a Face fit into that? 
he made 12, oh, I forgot the exact number, maybe 12 or 14 documentaries. And the very first one was, which I had to go to the French film archives to see, was before the Second World War. So it was a, it's, a, it's a very short, silent movie. Um, but all of, the rest of them um, started after the war and went up to just before his first feature film in 1958. So, you know, the sort of, the post-war period, late 1940s to 1958, was really his kind of documentary period. And then I'd about to say it was his second feature film. He made one before that, which is a really interesting one, actually. Yeah, I think that would be up there amongst the, the sort of three others that are really worth some attention, I think, for me. La Tête contre les Murs it had different Head Against the Walls, that means. So it's, it's, some, it's known as Head Against the Walls and also as... The Keepers, I think, in English. Although I've never seen a, I've never seen a copy of it with that title on it. I just found that as, as a title under which an English title under which which he was known. But that's a really interesting film about about mental illness, actually. I mean, and about the different ways he was treated because because it sort of it takes off on on how the law at that point in France, probably in a lot of other places too, allowed parents to to sort of imprison their children. You know, if they suspected them of any kind of of kind of you know sort of um, mental infirmity, and that. That sort of um, what the whole, what the whole plot revolves around, really. But it's a really interesting film. I mean, I kind of I read it as film noir in the book. Fair enough, I think. But uh, it's just you know it's thematically really interesting and and kind of very noirish in its mise en scène. Now you said that that fits amongst what three or four films that we should be watching of his or really pay attention to. I know Eyes Without a Face is the other one. What are some of the others? Head Against the Walls, either that face, and Judex, I think, which is a remake of the, the classic serial film of Judex, which was probably 1916. I've forgotten the exact year. It was during the First World War. So uh, Judex made by Fouillade, made by, um, you know, the great maker of, of, of serial films in France. He remade that. I mean, gosh, I can hardly remember the original. I mean, I did go and view it when I was writing the book, and, and so I could make comparisons um but I don't, yeah, I probably couldn't say much more about this that just now. But I think, you know, for its aesthetics and and for for its kind of atmosphere, um, Judex is a really is a really good film. It's it's a bit sort of um, they have a very slow, you know, kind of slow sort of narrative. I think um, it's not it's, the, the um, sort of narrative is is not very well paced by Florence. He kind of he he sort of errs on the side of of what what he loves doing, which is to to enjoy atmosphere and mood and and uh, and kind of just underestimate a little bit, you know, that the narrative need, needed a bit more pace. But but for its atmosphere, it's absolutely brilliant. And 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 sort of um, for for its costumes, uh, let me think. What would there be a fourth one apart from those three that I'd really really recommend? I mean, not sure that there would, but there might be. <laughs> For some reason, I thought you were going to say um, what was the '74 film uh, Red Knights? Is that right? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's that great, to be honest. I think that, I mean, that's probably my taste. I mean, but you know, it's kind of, it's very sort of kind of pulpy television fiction. And 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 some, what's most, what's great about um, about Eyes Without a Face and, and Judex is how they mix mix in you know, that that very sort of. Um, sort of pulp beauty with with um, with with also something which is kind of you know artistically really serious and and I think uh, although the pulp beauty is still there in in the Rouge then the then the artistic seriousness unfortunately isn't and I, and I obviously must be attracted to that as well as to the as well as to the sort of you know aesthetic <laughs> because when it's not there then I'm not so not so interested really I mean I mean Michel Rouge is worth 
worth um, obviously seeing, but um, but I wasn't a huge fan. <laughs> when Eyes Without Face came out originally, what was the reception like for the film? The anecdote that Durniak makes a lot of, and which which is certainly worth worth knowing, is that when it was shown at the Edinburgh Film Festival, um, which was probably 1960, yeah, um, I think it was 1960, because that's the year it was released in France, uh, in March, um, then um, seven people fainted <laughs> and had to be carried out of the, out of the auditorium. So, I mean, was a, but I used to tell that I taught the film for, for you know, a number of years um, to undergraduate students um, in, in Birmingham. And um, and obviously, you know, I mean, standards of um, of horror have, have have changed so completely with, with contemporary sort of contemporary horror film that um, that that when you showed the film to students and they were never scared. I mean, that, that they would ooh and ah quite a lot and and be a bit a bit um, kind of uh, revolted uh, or sometimes or a bit disgusted sometimes by the surgery scenes, but they were never actually scared. Um, and I think you know, but in 1959, I think. I think you know people actually were because um, because the the film did have something you know it had something new in it. I mean it had it had gore in it. I mean I think um, you know I haven't done a study of gore in in horror cinema from from sort of modern you know psycho onwards. But um, but I think that that Eyes Without a Face has a claim to be one of the very early movies that, that actually is doing it. And and um, and that's kind of what the audiences were reacting to because they just weren't used to it in 1959. So that was Scotland. Um, but it had it had very different reactions in in different places. I mean, I don't think it had it didn't have very many fans in France when it was first shown. It only acquired acquired ad- admirers really quite slowly um, over over a long period of time, along with along with Spongeu, who um, sort of had his admirers, but. But he wasn't sort of hugely successful during his li- lifetime. He could he couldn't get to make the films he wanted um, in the 1960s. I mean, there were lots of films he wanted to make, which went to other directors because he just wasn't. I mean, he was he was respected and and admired by by sort of um, the crazy cinema people and people in the know. But he wasn't. He didn't have a huge popular success during his lifetime, so he couldn't do the projects that he wanted to do. Um, whereas um, you know he did he did gradually kind of acquire that. Um, by the time he died, I guess. So that that France, um, and then it, of course in in the States, it's, oh, this is an, another you know, area I'd go into if I got more time to research the reception of the film, which I haven't really done um, in detail. Um, in the States, then you know it, the, the film was released on a double um, double bill with a, a much more kind of um, everyday sort of horror movie, uh, and you know acquired a kind of cult following really. Um, so. I know I include it in the book. Pauline Kale sort of has a review of the film, um, where she, where you know she talks about she was she was in one of the very the very early audiences and describes how you know how a kind of incredibly sort of fevered and sort of frenzied the atmosphere was watching the film. But that was that's quite that's quite culturally distinct. I don't think that the film got that kind of response anywhere else apart from apart from America. So. It's really interesting, actually. I mean, you got completely different responses um, when the film travelled to different countries. It was re-released in France in 1986. I, I remember finding a review written by Serge Danny, who was, you know, a really influential film critic of the 80s and 90s in, in France. Well, he died in the 90s, um, but um, but he was in charge of Liberation, French newspaper's film column, and and he wrote a review of it in the, when it was re-released in 1986, which which kind of you know sealed its reputation in France. So it was it was well known and and well appreciated by that stage. So I guess that that probably had you know gradually fed into it being 
released on the Criterion in the States and and, and subsequently, you know, um, by outfits like the BFI in, in London. I mean, because it was it was a, only done by the BFI um, last year. I am amazed that they released it before Franju uh, passed away because it it almost seems inevitable that there's the tragedy of, you know, the the film getting re-released and re-appreciated after the filmmaker's death. So, it, it, I mean, yeah, it was one year before he passed away, but I was glad that it was uh, 86 and not 88. That was nice, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know um, whether people... I, I'm, I'm, I haven't... There was very little biographical information available about Franchu when I researched him. I mean, I talked to one or two people who, who kind of who had known him personally, but I didn't try to find out about about the biography. Um, whether he was, you know, actually ill um, already in '86, and that was connected to to it being um, re-released. Then I don't know. That would be that would be interesting if um, if that were the case. But uh, yes, it is good that it was released before he died. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your new book. Tell me, as far as you said that it was uh, mostly about uh, female directors, and I was curious as far as who are some of the people that you're writing about in this. There are three British directors. I mean, they're all women, but um, three British directors, and then the rest are French. Um, and the, the two, well, the two French directors who I've got the most on are Agnès Varda, um, Catherine Bayard. Um, I've just been, uh, well, I am in, in kind of. Um, dialogue with the um, her production company at the moment, um, Flash Film, who who have been commissioned to be produce pictures from from her film Romance, which you know I could I could understand wouldn't necessarily be automatic, but I think they're going to say yes. So that's right. <laughs> I think by that for France, and then a, a number of other French directors, um, not all of whom are particularly well known. I'm not Claire Denis well known. I'm only write about two of two of um, Claire Denis films, um, whereas I write a there's quite a lot on Vaya and Vada, a, a number of their films. Um, the British directors are Sally Potter, um, Lynn Ramsey, although just for um, just for Morven Callas, the film Morven Callas in 2002, and Andrea Arnold um, for Red Road and Fish Tank. It's a very eclectic mix of filmmakers, I definitely have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, do they seem to you to be really too mixed a bag to go in one book together? Or? No, no, I don't think so. I just, it's, I can see something enjoyable or interesting in all of their work, and I think that you know, if more people get exposed to some of their work, I think that's fantastic. So, I, 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 I mean, especially looking at someone like uh, I, I always screw up her name, Catherine Brodiet. Um, yeah. I mean, such a such a challenging filmmaker, and I, I'm just so glad that there's somebody writing more about her. Good. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you appreciate stuff on her. She certainly is challenging. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I met her met her once only a couple of years ago because um, she got invited to Birmingham for um, in a, to, to a conference which a colleague of mine was organising. Um, you know, she was quite hard going. Um, I, I wanted to to sort of. Um, I mean, I was involved with interviewing her uh, along with a different colleague, not the same one who was organising the conference, um, on stage in in our sort of uh, local Birmingham cinema. And I mean, she she was interested to talk about her 
her work, but she wouldn't um, always engage with the way you wanted to do it. it would, her English is not that brilliant, and she, but she insisted on on talking in English. And I wanted to interview her in French because, um, you know, I just thought I'd get more across and translate it. But she wouldn't wouldn't let us do that. So, in fact, in fact, she um, she sort of couldn't answer the questions in English as well as the, the audience sort of wanted her to. I think they were they were a, a more you know they were kind of a more knowledgeable audience than than she was expecting. And um, and I, I, everyone I spoke to after the after the um, the event was was quite disappointed with with her interview, not with you know not with, not with the way we did it. But they said several people asked me, you know, why didn't you interview her in French? And I said I tried, but she wouldn't let me. <laughs> so she's <laughs> she's a tough cookie, you know. She's um, she just has to have things. Um, her own way, but of course, yeah, where filmmaking is concerned, um, then um, then that that you can you can see that that's uh, paid paid quite a lot of dividends. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. No, you're welcome. I mean, no, it's, it's, as I say, I mean, I get quite carried away when I start talking about eyes <laughs> without a face, or at least I forget forget that you know. I mean, I, this is not stuff I. I kind of have to dig out very often, but um, but it, it was a it was a real kind of I suppose I call it a fetish film of mine for a long time, you know, probably for sort of um, from when I first saw it in 1990 up until when the book came out. So that's 10 years, wasn't it? So um, you know, I sort of I invested in it pretty heavily for 10 years, uh, so I, it's all stuck down there somewhere in my memory, and it's it's a, it's a pleasure to dig it out. <laughs> We are back, and we were talking about Eyes Without a Face. We came back with one of the most recognizable themes in any film. That's Maurice Jarre's uh, theme to Eyes Without a Face, which, as I mentioned at the top of the show, really kind of resonated with me, especially in the cover version by Combustible Edison. And then, Maitland, I know you pointed out kind of an interesting thing uh, as far as that song kind of coming back and maybe being injected into popular culture these days. The place that I first realized I, I recognized it from was from the theme for Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is incredibly similar. It is not the same piece of music. It's a piece that's called Frolic, and it's by an Italian composer whose name is eluding me right now. But when I showed this movie at the Huntington Arts Center some years ago, the first thing that somebody asked me in the Q&A part was, oh my God, that's the theme from Curb Your Enthusiasm, isn't it? And I said, well, no, actually, it's, it's a, an original composition by the French composer Maurice Jarre, and uh, no, it's not, which I said rather blindly because I had never seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, so I had no idea. But you know, when I went home and Googled it later that night, it was shocking how similar it is.
is that it does have a kind of a carnival tone to it. It sort of sounds like something that you would hear on a calliope at a circus performance. And the fact that the Italian composition is called frolic makes complete sense to me. What doesn't make sense is encountering it in a movie like Eyes Without a Face, where the rest of the score is a very low-key, very haunting, very beautifully melodic theme that underscores the sadness of the film. There is no moment in Eyes Without a Face where I think that that kind of carnivalesque music seems appropriate, and yet it is so completely intertwined with everybody's memory of that film, everybody who's ever seen it, that I can't imagine Eyes Without a Face without it. I always think of the music, and, and the thing it reminds me of uh, when I, every time I watch it is the theme for the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard of Oz, that uh, kind of driving, as you were saying, almost carnival-like music. And Eyes Without a Face balances a lot of realities. And there's the reality of Paris and the police and these young women who are getting taken. And then there's the reality of this house, this massive kind of oppressive castle that some of these characters are trapped in and that one man controls. And it's like every time the film kind of veers back to Louise or the doctor, you get that kind of carnivalesque thing. And it's just, we are in a different reality as an audience member. We're not in the reality that we understand. We are in something different now. And I like that it's a delineation. And I like that it's kind of as wacky and silly as it is, because it feels so bold. And I love seeing uh, a risk like that uh, realized on screen. And to me, I think like both of you realized so successfully. Actually, one of the other things that I love about this movie is where it's actually taking place and where that house is. Because it's not a traditional haunted house. It's not like Castle Dracula up in the Carpathian Mountains. It's, as somebody says, oh, it's in the banlieues, which are the suburbs of Paris. I mean, it's the thing that makes makes her think maybe she doesn't want to rent a room there because she doesn't really want to live out in the suburbs. She actually, she wants to live in Paris and has to be reassured that, oh, look, that's the train station where you can pick up a train and it'll take you right into Paris in 20 minutes. It's really not so far away. And yet it is completely far away from everything that we normally associate with with a house of horrors. It's a very opulent suburban house. I mean, you could put that house into any of those real housewives <laughs> settings, and that would be the great trophy house that somebody lived in. It's, it's really quite beautiful. It's quite light. It's got gardens. It does have a nasty dungeon with all those dogs in the basement, but it's basically a very aspirational, at the very least, upper middle class house in which these unbelievable, horrible things are going on, these things that you would associate with dungeons and with old castles and with crumbling mansions somewhere way far away from where anybody might discover it. It really is horror just in the center of Scarsdale or something. Really kind of great. Yeah, I do like that the music is kind of jaunty. It starts off a little bit dark with that kind of the the chords coming in at the very beginning. And the way that it plays out during that first scene, the first scene almost kind of reminds me of Psycho in some ways. The whole idea of 
Louise driving this car with this kind of driving score. Obviously, it's not the string sections of Bernard Herman, but it definitely has some similar overtones to me, especially when the car comes up behind her and we have the lights in the rearview mirror. Uh, I was definitely thinking of Marion Crane trying to get away from everything, trying to get away from Phoenix and trying to, to make a new life for herself. And I was thinking of that at first until we see that body in the back and that very, very suspicious, especially the way that when she hits a bump and it kind of tilts over, it's just like, oh yeah, something is really not right here. But I, I definitely was picking that up, and I, I can't remember if it was raining at the same time or not, or if just that Louise wears this raincoat through a lot of this. But really, a lot of that time that the, the music comes up seems to be associated with Louise. So it, I was also reminded a little bit of M with uh, the Hall of the Mountain King and the way that Peter Laurie would whistle that as kind of his you know motif through the film, because... Like I said, the first time I, you're watching this, you might think that Louise is just a serial killer. I mean, she would fit right into, you know, you could probably correct me on this one, Maitland, but it seems like she could fit into a Jolly film if she had some black leather gloves on to go with that black coat that she's wearing. Oh, I could absolutely see her in a Jolly, and that, that black, whether it's leather or some kind of slicker material coat that she wears, is a really striking garment. It doesn't just look like something that you would wear when it's raining because you don't want to get your nice couture dress wet. It's got a a kind of perverse sensuality to it that has to do with that texture. And I think it's what makes that scene where she's dragging the girl's body across the grass really creepily potent. There is something very sexual about it, even though there is absolutely no sex in it just because of the interplay of that that shiny, slick texture and the grass underfoot and the body that really mostly what you see there is those pale, pale legs illuminated by the moonlight. It's very sensual in a, in a very bad way. Well, there's even times when she is stalking Edna in the city, I mean, because it is very deliberate. And once she finds out that Edna is someone in need of a room... Basically, the light bulb goes off, and she begins this whole plan of, hey, let me take you to the theater, let's meet for lunch, all these kind of things. It feels almost like a sexual predator. She seems like, I apologize for the use of the term, but she seems like this old dyke who's trying to get this young girl into bed with her. And so I can definitely see that kind of sexuality in her outfit as well that you you were talking about. Oh, absolutely. And, and those seduction sequences feel exactly like grooming. You know, she's preparing her for something uh, with her silly ruse of, oh, my fiance didn't turn up and I have this ticket. And, oh, why don't you meet me in the cafe? And when the girl doesn't really know what to order because it's clear she doesn't have very much money and so she doesn't want to order something she can't afford, Alita Valley's character immediately says, oh, get this young girl what I'm having. It, it's, very, very creepy and very, very sexual and also very, very controlling, which is clearly something that she's learned from Dr. Genessier. She's completely taking control of that situation so that she can make sure that she gets that girl into her car and persuades her to come out and see this room in a neighborhood that clearly is not where a young woman would want to live. I mean, if you're a young girl and you're in school and you are going to school in Paris, you you 
you know, you want to live in Paris. You want to have the kind of life that you can have in college when you're living in a fun neighborhood and you're going out with your friends. I mean, she's not going to be able to do that living out in the banlieues. So it's uh, it's very, very mastering in a way that is very reminiscent of Dr. Genessier himself. I find with the style of this film that's actually quite bougie. Everyone's very Parisian chic, but in a way that feels kind of unearned. It feels also forced, but you kind of realize that everyone has this facade. I mean, all of these people have their fallacies. Like you mentioned the young girl at the cafe, and she's trying to be there. But as you said, um, she doesn't have any money. So she doesn't know what to do in that. So she's kind of like faking her way through it, just as Louise is faking her own um, motivations behind speaking to this girl and helping her. And I think there's also, you know, an interesting point now when we get to France in the 60s at this point, when these suburbs were becoming increasingly populated um, by immigrant families uh, who are being brought over to France to help rebuild after World War II. And then they were being moved out to the quote-unquote cheaper housing in the suburbs to, you know, be able to commute into work, but also then get the fuck out of their city when they were no longer needed or wanted. And I, I think that's why you see this kind of, that young girl, and she seems so apprehensive about the suburbs. And I, I think there is, you know, absolutely, as, as you say correctly, Maitland, um, on a lot of those things, but I think there is, you know, you're starting to get into that political mindset of Paris and France is not really becoming the Paris and France that a lot of people think of. It's evolving into something more modern. And and I think that's what Eyes Without a Face presents so interestingly. You know, the, the horror and the tragedy of this film stems from a car accident, uh, an emblem of modernity. So we we have these characters kind of scrambling with their Frenchness and their bouginess against these things that are changing rapidly around them. What do you guys think about the idea of that black coat that we see Louise in so much of the time versus that white dressing gown that we see Christiane in. I mean, it, it really, to me, it helps add to her innocence as well as her ghost-like appearance. And I can't really get over how striking it is to have her all in that. It does seem like a gown. It doesn't even seem like she might be wearing anything under it. It just seems like one piece with the mask and they almost seem to be of a set. Well, I think first and foremost, as you said, it absolutely solidifies, which is a, an ironic word in this context, the feeling that she's a ghost, that she's not really living life anymore because she's been pulled out of it by this pretense on her father's part that she's dead. And so she's just drifting through the rooms of the house and later at the end out into the darkness in this brilliantly white, it looks to me like a, a very nice, dressing gown that makes her look as though she's barely there. She's rendered insubstantial by it, which goes back to her comment about looking at herself in the mirror and saying that she doesn't see herself because yourself is completely bound up in your physical being. No matter how much you can look in the mirror and try to see what you would really love to look like, what you really see is you see your flesh. And you see whatever you do or don't like about your cheekbones, your chin, your neck, your eyes, all of those things that you either accept in yourself or perhaps you try to change surgically, or in her case, somebody else is trying to change surgically for her. And 
yourself, which is the person you are inside. And she makes that distinction, but is doing it under incredibly fraught circumstances. I think there's also something very desexualizing about that housecoat thing that she has. I completely agree. You definitely get that ghost sense from it. But there's, you know, it's it's just this kind of shapey blob thing that she wears, and it looks quite beautiful and, again, chic. But when you have the contrast of these young girls in Paris who, you know, are students and, you know, don't have much money, but their clothes are a lot more form-fitting, you get the sense that these are young women. These are young urban women who are getting all kinds of experiences and growing up. And I think that kind of white gown, cloak, house dress serves to increasingly infantilize Christiane to the point when, you know, she calls Jacques and I was like, oh God, they have not done anything at all. Even Louise's clothing is more sexualized than Christiane's. I mean, she's wearing nice, sharp, very form-fitting suits with a nice little belt around the middle. You can see she has a figure in a way that you really can't with Christiane. And part of that clearly is she's young and she's very slender and she doesn't have womanly curves yet, but part of it is that she has been desexualized. I find it ironic that you uh, said that she is just a shape when it comes to the outfit that she's wearing, Alexander, because one of the things I also thought about while I was watching this film was the shape, quote-unquote. The uh, I think that's one of the things that they called uh, Michael Myers in Halloween, and just that whole idea of the white mask and never knowing what's happening behind the mask when it comes to Michael Myers, and that just being such a, a, a great way of having Christiane in this film where we can try to read things through her eyes, but Otherwise, that's it. That's the only way that we have to reach her. And we don't even have the eyes when it comes to Michael Myers. We never get to see any of his reactions and just the way that he is covered. Really, he's kind of covered head to toe as well with the mask. And then he's usually wearing the the kind of onesie outfit. So we have very much an advantage when we look at Christiane because we get to see her eyes versus Michael Myers, where we never get to see what's actually happening behind that mask. You know, one of the things that I noticed just as I was watching this movie this afternoon is that there are actually two masks that you see, and there's one of them is very different from the other. One of them is the mask that you actually see her pick up and put over her face, and that's clearly a fairly hard plastic mask whose contours, although they are designed to look like a kind of ideal female set of proportions, is still very clearly plastic. But there are scenes in this movie where she's speaking, especially where you can see she's wearing some different mask that looks as though it's made out of some kind of vinyl that's much closer to her face, close enough that you can see it vibrating slightly around the mouth when she talks, that is very much more like the mask in Halloween. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. It looks much more like it's a face covering mask rather than a mask that's just sitting over the face. And it, it's an eerie effect. It's, uh, it's disturbing. It's, it's disjunctive. Well, I believe Carpenter actually took direct influence from Eyes Without a Face uh, with the use of the mask for Michael Myers. I've definitely read that several places that he was inspired by how creepy he found this film and and how much we could project onto nothing and how much more terrifying that is because this film in some ways actually feels quite dialogue heavy. You have a lot of people expressing their needs and their wants 
constantly, which is really interesting. But Christiane, as much as, you know, she does say things and she does say what she wants occasionally, she's so unknowable. And it really drives home that point of how important these things are to society, how a face tick or an expression or laughter or a small smile can mean so much to us. It can indicate so much. And Christiane is stripped of that with this mask. And, you know, when we can see her talk or not talk, it just adds to this otherworldly quality that she has, which is so, again, so unique. And this film does so well. And I think actually this is a point where we really should give great credit to Edith Scobe, who was very young when she made this film. It might have been her second, maybe her third film. Her performance is quite exceptional, particularly given that for most of the film, her face is covered by a mask. Her physical presence is, I think, very beautiful, very graceful, and yet very tenuous in a way that speaks volumes about the character, and very, very controlled, and I have to believe, very well thought out. Yeah, it is a wonderful, wonderful performance, and I'm glad that you know she is, is still a very vital actress today. She is still doing a lot of great work, and just to, to be able to have this very long-reaching career, I'm, I'm really glad that she's still out there doing this for us. Oh, I'm amazed by it. I mean, I saw her in a Leos Carax movie like, two years ago. It's astonishing how long her career has been, and it's a tribute to the fact that she's a very sensitive and very versatile actress. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show that this film was released in the U.S. as the Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus, which is just such a hyperbolic title. I absolutely love it. But it it actually isn't that bad as far as it being a dubbed version of the film. I watched it this afternoon or kind of listened to it and I found that it really actually kind of plays that it uh, does a good job with the sound work, like things like her speaking to her fiance via the phone. We actually have some good sound work when it comes to the, the sound of her voice over the phone and everything. So they didn't butcher it too badly though. There was one part that I was watching, speaking of music, which we kind of brought this discussion back from the break with, there is this crazy music that happens around the 18-minute mark, and I'm going to drop it into this episode because it just doesn't necessarily fit with what Jar's score was doing, especially because it actually seems to use, like, I don't know if it's Jar's score played backwards or what it is, but there's definitely a backwards theme that's going on with this music. And it runs, it's almost like somebody said, this part of the movie is boring. It's during the drive back from the funeral. So it's like, let's put some music in here and make it creepy. So they, they did their job. They put music in there and it's a little bit creepy, but it really kind of sticks out like a sore thumb as I'm watching the film. At first, I was just like, do I have another window open? Is something auto-playing that I, I'm not aware of? And closed down all my windows except for that one. And I, uh, and I even like checked another version of it that was out online. I was like, nope, this is in here. Because I also I watched it uh, a horror host type of show. Very poor horror host, but that's what I watched it as. And then I had to go out and find a different version of it just to see if they were mucking around with this film and, you know, like how Sven Gulli will add sound effects, those kind of things. But I was like, nope, this is the music that they chose to put into the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus. And 
really goes against what Jar had done with his score. So uh, just be warned if you uh, if you don't like subtitles, which God forgive you if you don't, but if you don't like subs and you want to watch this uh, dubbed, that music just it might drive you away. originally released on a double bill with the Manster in the U.S. What can you even say about that, except that I suppose there is some weird body horror thing going on in the Manster that you could maybe, if you were really dedicated, like you were doing a paper and your grade depended on it, you could make some kind of parallel between those films, but otherwise, what the hell? Speaking of parallels, watching Eyes Without a Face again on Sunday morning and then watching right afterwards, I put on The Skin I Live In, which I'd never seen before. And there are so many echoes between The Skin I Live In and Eyes Without a Face that it just was almost a little disturbing to watch them back to back just because there were things like the car accident or they make them, uh, she makes a mention of seeing her face uh, reflected in the window when the window is open. And that's basically how one of the characters realizes that they're horribly burned and end up, you know, later on committing suicide. But yeah, it just, and I know Moldovar obviously he cops to the fact that he took a lot from eyes without a face, but it was just a, it was a it was a great double bill, rather than that formless blob that we were talking about that Christiane kind of looks like in that white outfit. In this film, we have this uh, skin colored uh, outfit that one of the characters wears that just accentuates everything. So it's kind of taking the one idea and flipping it on its head when it comes to how we are seeing these characters portrayed. But of course, in this one, the whole idea of why this woman uh, with this new skin is being sexualized is a whole other ball game. Almodovar is a really great filmmaker, and so you're seeing a very sophisticated rethinking of the fundamental imagery and thematic material in Eyes Without a Face, but there are more movies than you would think that draw on it. I mean, there was a, a really awful Jess Franco movie called uh, Awful Dr. Orloff, I think is the one, that is pretty much a remake in an in inimitable Jess Franco style. And there was also a movie called Mansion of the Doomed with Richard Basehart that reworks the entire thing, uh, and not terrifically well, I have to say. I think that was directed by Michael Pataki. And I know that I have seen an Asian version of Eyes Without a Face that I spent actually a couple of hours this afternoon trying to track down. But I know I saw it at one of the Asian film festival marathons that once again, it took the same material. And I remember included the whispering on the phone to the fiance scene. It's something really potent that just speaks to people so much that they keep on reworking it. Yeah, one of the things I thought of, you know, since, you know, my initial watch of this film a few years ago was how it all kind of links back to the Phantom of the Opera. Um, that, you know, maybe being the, 
I don't know, the original, but one of the earliest incarnations in popular culture of this kind of mangled face covered with a mask and hiding from society. And, you know, of course, it went on, you know, to be the Andrew Lloyd Webber thing and then, you know, multiple film iterations of it. And it so it kind of exa- uh, exacerbated that stress we have about, you know, an outward appearance and how do we mask it and what happens when we mask it? What do we lose of ourselves? But I, I think... Um, there's so many other kind of interesting dialogues around the notion of having to cover one's face and what that comes from and what it leads to. Well, and also in Phantom of the Opera, you have that theme of the remaking of a woman. And that is the Phantom's entire goal is to make this this young singer into a star, to remake her into something other than just a girl who can sing, to uh, a diva, a star, something that people will see as a thing, actually. They won't see her as a person anymore. They will see her as a great star of the opera. So that completely plays into the same idea of of remaking people to match an ideal that is not really for their benefit. It's for somebody else's. It's a mark of who they are, what this other person could become. And what they made them, quite specifically. It, it really, again, it's the Dr. Genessier thing. It's the, I will not be thwarted by anything. I will exert my control and shape the world in my image, even if the world is narrowed down to my daughter, this young singer, whatever. Yeah, before I forget, I can really see where a retelling of this story could look or would look really good as kind of, I don't know if it was a Korean film you saw or Chinese or Japanese, but it seems like it would really lend itself to a J-horror kind of a, a look and feel. I wish I could remember what it was. And as I said, I spent a while trying to find it. But yes, absolutely. Because, you know, there there is particularly in Japan, but also in China and in Korea, there is a great deal of idealizing of what women should be in very specific terms, not just you should be fair of face and filled with grace, but that your nose should look exactly like this and your feet should look exactly like this and your deportment should be exactly like this. So, yes. Well, I'm hoping that one of our listeners might be able to uh, leave a comment and let us know if they know the uh, Asian version of Eyes Without a Face. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a trailer for next week's show. House.
That's right. We'll be back next week with, speaking of a Japanese film, a wacky Japanese film called House, where I'll be joined by Miguel Rodriguez and Rob St. Mary. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Maitland McDonough and Alexandra West. Maitland, what is the haps with all of your smut peddling these days? Well, it is just proceeding apace, because really, the world needs more smut. Uh, I'm about to put out a book called Gay Cruise, which has got to be the most on-the-point title ever, but is actually very, very entertaining because it involves a, a former Hollywood cowboy who decides that the way to transition out of being what's sold and the seller is to buy a yacht and turn it into a floating brothel stocked with uh, male prostitutes who represent something for everybody. So there is one of pretty much every variety of attractive young male for sale you could imagine it's very entertaining very smart quite funny in places and surprisingly pointed in others can i pre-order that via amazon anytime soon it should be available on amazon within the next month and again the title is gay cruise from 120 days books so alexander what have you been doing in the uh, great white north and congratulations on all your success with faculty of horror i saw today that it was listed as one of the top seven podcasts that you should be listening to or movie podcasts i should say mine and andrea subasati's little baby seems to just kind of keep chugging along and we just wrapped up a really fun two-part episode on the alien franchise and we're about to record our summer episode on uh fright night and the lost boys which i think will also be really fun so yeah come check us out at facultyofhorror.com or on facebook twitter all that good stuff and i also have my first book out it's just coming out you can get it on amazon wherever you are and it is called Films of the New French Extremity, Visceral Horror and National Identity. So I talk a little bit about Eyes Without a Face as kind of a precursor to some of the elements in New French Extremity, but I'm dealing with, you know, everything from I Stand Alone to Irreversible to 29 Palms to Pola X to High Tension, Martyrs, uh, Inside, all the most depressing French movies you can think of. I spend about 85,000 words writing about. So it's out in the world now. It's available. And if you're curious um, about some wacky French films, it might be of interest to you. And a good time will be had by all. <laughs> exactly. It's a real light beach read, I like to say. And just so folks know, actually, Alexandra will be back in the fall. We're going to have her on for an episode about martyrs. So we get to talk even more about your book, which I'm really excited about. Can't wait to see that U.S. remake of Martyrs. Just really can't wait oh, to see it. Oh, you can wait, Mike. You can definitely wait. I, I, it's I'm terrible. So excited. I'm so excited. I must <laughs> concur. Yeah. But I have to see it for the episode, though. That's the thing. It does have one of my favorite goofiest moments, like inexplicably goofy moments in the film, in any film I've seen recently. So maybe we can chat about that in October. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a hell of a ride that we make. Well, I look forward to it. I look forward to having you back on. And Maitland, it is always a pleasure to have you on. It is always a pleasure to be here. Thanks again, ladies, and thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can link over to Maitland's books, to Alexandra's book, and also Alexandra's podcast. And you can also link over to our Patreon page. If you donate just even a buck a month, you'll have early access to new shows. Every dollar helps us to take over the world. 
Me sad. 
on your eyes I better realize Eyes without a face Eyes without a face
Someone else pocket to make a slip I steal a car go to Vegas ooh, to the gigolo I'm hanging out by the state line turning holy waters into wine I'm drinking it down yeah whoa come on now here to me I'm on a bus on a psychedelic trip reading murders books and trying to stay here I'm thinking of you you're out there so Save your prayers, save your prayers, come on and save your prayers, use on visa, ride with that face, use on visa, you ride with that face, got no human grace, you ride without a face, without a face. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.